Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to pick up at verse 17 today. Uh, Just going back a little bit of what we were looking at last week. Last week was when God shows up in the garden and he ends up rebuking the serpent, ends up rebuking the woman. We got that far. And now we're going to look at the rebuke of the man. You may recall that uh, the order that these rebukes come is in the reverse order of the discussion. God shows up. He has his conversation with Adam first, and then he has the conversation with a woman. doesn't bother having the conversation with the serpent, but then uh, ends up cursing or rebuking the serpent, then ends up uh, rebuking the woman. Now he's going to be rebuking the man. Somebody mind reading verses 17, 18, and 19. To Adam said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. The painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, from for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. Verse 17, then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife. So Adam sounds like he's getting punished because he listened to his wife. Could you take from this and make a, uh, a false mm-hmm. teaching out of it that uh, men should not listen to their wives then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose you could. You could probably find a passage to say just about whatever you want in the Bible. So you would have to look at the rest of Scripture to help you interpret it. It would be inappropriate to look at this verse and go, oh, see, honey, it says right here, I don't have to listen to you. In fact, God's going to punish me just like he punished Adam if I listen to you. That would be inappropriate. That would not be listening to the full counsel of God, taking into consideration all the rest of the teaching of the Bible. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife. Uh, By the way, the word wife right there, this is, uh, again, to help us to recognize, this is actually the first marriage. And so even though we've, and we've looked at this before, even though there wasn't a marriage ceremony that we're familiar with, at least not recorded in these passages, okay, this is a marriage between a man and a wife. And God, using his own words, inspiring Moses, obviously, by the Holy Spirit to write those down, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Which tree is he talking about? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right. Which tree is he not talking about? Tree of life. Tree of life, exactly. The tree of which I commanded you. We talked about this last week as well. This wasn't a suggestion. God didn't say, hey, I suggest you stay away from that tree. It was a command. You shall not eat of it. Can you think of any other commands that God has for us that say you shall not? Commit murder. Yeah, you shall not murder. There's an example right there. You shall not commit adultery. Lie. You shall not, yep, bear false witness. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. Good. Yeah. Right out of the Ten Commandments. Right out of the Ten Commandments. It doesn't end there, though, does it? There's plenty of things where you can hear the Spirit testifying in your life. 
you shall not do that. <laughs> Just about when you're about to engage in something that you know better, and you, it, you would call it your conscience or maybe the spirit saying to you, don't do that. And maybe perhaps for Adam, he thought, oh, this is a small deal. This isn't such a big thing. Just as we would excuse ourselves and saying, oh, this is a small deal. This isn't such a big thing. Did it turn out to be a big deal? For Adam, it definitely turned out to be a big deal. Sometimes when we were weighing the cost, we don't expect the cost will be so high. Just as Adam didn't expect the cost to be so high. The Bible says he did it willingly, knowingly. Just as we engage in our sinful choices, knowingly and willingly oftentimes. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. So this is the second place where curse shows up. The first one was when? The serpent, right? The snake. The serpent was cursed. And then here we have the second curse. Not on Adam, but within the rebuke of Adam, the the second curse shows up. It's the curse on what? The ground. The ground, exactly. The ground is being cursed. What does that look like? What does that look like by the words that are being used to describe it? Yeah, we're going to see some thorns. We're going to see some thistles. Verse 18. And I I think that list is not exhaustive. I think there's probably plenty of other things that you could include in that, those being representative. It's kind of strange to think about the creation being cursed. The creation being cursed. We'll talk about that a little bit as we go. By the way, man's sin was eating. It had to do with eating, right? He ate from the tree of which he was not supposed to eat. And it's interesting that the punishment is couched in eating terms. There are five times that the word eat is used in God's rebuke of man in this little passage, in just these few verses here. Five times. Cursed is ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it. That word there that's translated toil, translated into English for toil, it's actually the same word that shows up in the rebuke of the woman that describes the type of pain she'll experience in in childbirth. So she will experience pain that she presumably wouldn't have had to experience if she hadn't sinned, just as he is going to experience pain. Her pain, same word in both of these situations, her pain obviously having to do with childbirth. His pain in having to work with the ground, trying to get out enough to live on. Her pain is on the generation of life. His pain is on the sustaining of life. Both labor. Both labor. In English, you see the same word is used, labor, to describe both. Labor for the woman who's pregnant, about to give birth. Labor for the man who's got to work the soil, trying to get enough food to survive. So pain or toil, that same word in the Hebrew is is describing the situation for both the man and the woman. These are in the areas where where they're called to function the most. And a woman's role in giving childbirth, that's not the man's role. (laughs) The woman is the one that's going to give childbirth. And in that role, that's where the pain is associated. And the man and his working of the ground, his trying to provide for his family, that's where he's going to feel pain, both in their greatest roles. Do men and women still experience the pain that is similar to what's been described here? Yeah. Yeah, we still experience this today. The curse is still in effect. The curse is still in effect on men. The curse is still in effect on women. The curse is still in effect on the creation. Romans 5.12, Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. 
So we have there in Romans 5.12 this idea that this is carried on since that time, right down to the present, which we experience as well. But thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, Genesis 3.18, and you shall eat the herb of the field. Thorns and thistles. Romans 8, chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, Paul ends up saying that the creation waits in eager expectation. He says that the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. In verse 21, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. In verse 22, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So yeah, the curse on creation exists, it remains as well. Will we ever see the curse lifted from creation? The New Jerusalem? Good, yep. New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. Yeah, at the end of the book of Revelation, we get some good news. <laughs> that there is a redemption of sorts that's going to happen. And creation in this time, eagerly waiting for it. That's strange to think about. The trees are eagerly waiting for this. <laughs> the rocks are eagerly waiting for this. The mountains, eager. eager expectation is the wording that's used here. Does that mean these things have feelings? No. You know, it's poetic language. But it's interesting to think about. That even if we find the most beautiful spots, you know, whether we go to Yosemite or a sunset in Hawaii, you know, pick your most favorite, you know, beautiful spot. It's still part, what you're seeing is part of the fallen creation. How magnificent will it be on a sunset when it's restored? How awesome is it going to be, you know, whatever is going to supersede Yosemite, you know, when it's restored? I don't know. I'm looking forward to that. I think it's going to be pretty neat. I think it's going to be pretty neat. We also see that the relief from this situation here with the thorns and the thistles, man doesn't get relief in his lifetime. This is to continue all the days of his life. Right? If you look at verse 19, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. You remember when we were looking at Genesis chapter 1, the end of chapter 1 when it talks about Adam, and he was taken and made out of the ground, right? And the word for ground was just the addition of that one additional sound, that one additional letter, Adama. So God's reminding him, you know what? I took you out of the ground. And now, because of these choices you've made, you're going to return to the ground. And Adam's going to return to Adama. Was well, this the first time Adam realized I'm going to die? This is the first time Adam realized he was going to die. Did he have any hint that that was going to be part of the punishment? Surely die. Yeah, exactly. Surely die. God had warned him, right? Yeah. If you look at chapter 2, verse 27. Mm-hmm. Chapter 2, I'm sorry, 2.17. What does it say there? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Exactly. So right there, he was warned. He was warned. Now let me ask you this. That verse brings up an interesting thing. Because it says in the day that you eat of it, you shall... What does that sound like? Immediate. It sounds immediate, doesn't it? In the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. Did Adam die that day? Mm-hmm. I mean, we find in chapter 5, verse 5, his death. His death is recorded in chapter 5, verse 5, as being 930 years. That he lived to the age of 930 years. He didn't die this day. Or did he? Unless it's a spiritual death. Unless it's a spiritual death. Right? Isn't that a possibility that we could die spiritually just as easily as we could die physically? Because isn't that a <clears throat> point where his relationship with God 
ended right from what it had been right so it's just it changed how about this consider this illustration not talking now about the tree of life not talking now about the tree of knowledge and good and evil but talking using a tree illustration if you cut down a tree let's say uh, if you ever go to um fashion island and you see their christmas tree right every december they get this huge tree mm-hmm. and you look at it and you go man that tree's big that's the biggest christmas tree around and then you think about it and you go wait that that tree has been cut down somewhere right that tree didn't grow there they hauled it in on some big flatbed truck the tree's standing up but it's been cut down somewhere who knows oregon i don't know washington where do they get this tree so this tree is standing there but it's been cut down at what point is the tree dead? Still takes water yeah. to some degree. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Is is there hope though? It's going to continue on for indefinitely. No, 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 there isn't. Right. So that tree, from the point of being cut down, its doom is sealed. It's inevitably going to succumb to the to the action that's already happened. Right. So, in a sense, that tree is dead from the moment it's cut. Even though it still looks good. And by the time they get it down here and decorate it, it looks great. It looks like it's a living tree. But if you think about it, you know that tree is not going to last as long as the ones that it was surrounded by in the forest that are still growing. Those trees are still growing. That tree starts dying from the moment it's cut. That tree goes from a living tree to a dying tree from the moment it gets cut. Adam and Eve go from living beings to dying beings from the moment they sin. So in a sense, they are physically dying. The process of dying has already started for them. And spiritually, their relationship with God, that's been, that's been killed too. Their relationship with God isn't what it was. They've been cut down spiritually as well by their own choices, by their own actions. Their doom is sealed, and now it's a matter of letting it run out. There's also uh, that word there for day, yom. We looked at it also, obviously, a lot in, in Genesis chapter 1. And you remember some of the discussion that we had about that word, that it could be used to describe a literal 24-hour period, and that's often what it is used to describe. But we do run across places where it's used in meaning something like an era, and in this case, the argument could be made that this is one of those places. So you don't, you can still look at it as a literal 24-hour period and knowing that their, de- their doom is sealed, their death is, is assured from that point on and not have to violate the 24-hour period description of that word. Or if you were one of those that says, you know what, I'm going to read into this the place right here that uh, the word yom is to be interpreted here as a longer period of time. Either way, they do end up dying. They die instantly spiritually. And they seal their doom. Their death begins. They go from living to dying physically as well from that moment on. One of the interesting things, too, is talking about spiritual death. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, in describing the people in the church there in Ephesus, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. He's speaking to the Christians in the church in Ephesus. He's saying, And you he made alive. You, he, God, Christ made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. These people were dead. The Christians in the church were dead prior to becoming Christians. They were dead spiritually. But they didn't know that. The person who's dead spiritually isn't going to recognize they're dead. Right? 
Paul is bringing to their realization that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, but Christ brought them back to life. That they were resurrected, if you will, in a sense, or they were given new birth. Genesis 3.20 And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. You remember earlier he called her woman, right? Upon the creation, she was called woman. He declared her to be woman. Now he's calling her something else, Eve. He's calling her Eve. The word there for Eve, the Hebrew word, the word there for Eve is written in Hebrew, something similar to that. I'm not going to claim that I know how to write Hebrew or that I've been doing this a long time. I haven't. You know that about me. All right. This word for Eve is hey vav hey. Hey vav hey. Does that sound familiar from anything we've run into so far? What does it sound like? Maybe yod hey vav hey. So this is Eve. All right. And this is living. So in this passage that you see right here, and Adam called his wife's name Eve. That's this one right here. Because she was the mother of all living. That's one, this one here. So out of, out of this, right, comes this. Out of Eve comes living. So this comes out of this word. And then if you just add this one additional stroke right here, recognize it now. yod heh vav Yahweh. Eve comes from God, and all living comes from Eve. So you've got grammatically, in Hebrew, you've got this whole structure going on that we don't see in English, but it's kind of neat to look at in Hebrew. So from here comes that, and then from Eve comes living. Pretty neat. Moving on. Adam's naming of Eve here is kind of an act of faith on his part, because he's just found out that he's going to die, right? Or he's probably figuring out that he's going to die. At least from the language, it would seem pretty clear. I'm going to return to dust. That sounds like I'm going to be dying, mm -hmm. all right? And then he still expresses, though, this act of faith, because he still sees that my wife's going to still give birth. I mean, what good is it to have a curse on you or to have a rebuke on you that you're going to have pain in childbirth if you're never going to give birth to children? So he recognizes that in an act of faith, recognizes that God is still providing for them to have children. So he changes her name to Mother of Living. Or Eve, actually in English, could be translated as life giver. This word right here in Hebrew. So this is living here, and this is life giver. All right. I wonder if that, kind of just real quick. Sure. It's almost like, I wonder if that spiritual death happens almost right away within Adam. And he's almost like maybe lonely inside and is like bonding to his wife in that way, kind of like, you know. I wouldn't be surprised. I bet you're right. I bet you're right. Yeah. One of the things, though, that we can't escape in, in coming to the end of, of where God curses them or where God rebukes them is that what we might think is a small sin. We have the prerogative to choose to sin or not when we're about to engage in sinful behavior. Unless it's something we don't know that is going to be a sin before we go into it. But for the sins that we know going into it, that's going to be a sin. We have the prerogative to choose to go down that path or not. What we don't have the prerogative is to recognize what the cost is going to be. We don't have the foresight to be able to tell what that cost is. So one of the things that we can learn from this is that oftentimes the cost associated with sin is a lot higher 
than we might want to think it is before going into it. One of the other things that we would learn from this is that sin doesn't go unchecked or unchallenged. That perhaps Adam thought, well, God's not here yet for our walk, so maybe I should do it and get it over with just before Mm -hmm. he gets here, as if he won't see. You know, maybe sometimes we, in our justified, trying to justify ourselves, might say, well, you know, I'm sure God won't see this. This is just a little thing. I'm sure I can get away with it. And then by Sunday, I'll, I'll be good with God again. Sunday morning, I'll say sorry. As if that's really the way it works. Moving on from there. Verse 21. Somebody might read in verse 21. And the Lord God made robes of skin for Adam and for his wife and clothed them. Made skins and clothed them. Where did the skins come from? Animal skins, you would think. Animal skins. Exactly right. Do you suppose the animals could do without their skins? <laughs> suppose there were some animals running around the garden with no skins? No. No, animals don't run around without skin. Animals die to give up their skin. This is actually the first recorded death hmm. that we have. The death of these animals from which God took their skins to give to man and to give to woman. This is when death enters the picture. Physical death for certain. Physical death. This is when physical death enters the picture from Genesis to Revelation, traces itself back to here. Physical death. Did the animals deserve to die? No. No. For all intents and purposes, they were innocent. The animals were innocent but they ended up being sacrificed for sin offering. Yeah. In a type of sin offering. Later on in the Mosaic Covenant, God provides for the children of Israel and moves Moses to write and describe it for them. A sacrificial system where they could atone for their sins by taking innocent animals and sacrificing these innocent animals to make a covering or to atone for their own indiscretions. Now we learn from Hebrews chapter 10 though that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to ever take away sins. So what was it doing? It was doing two things. It was providing a temporary covering for them in a sense of uh, covering spiritually and it was a yearly reminder of their own sinfulness. That you couldn't go year to year without the reminder of your sinfulness. And that would create in in them and in us the recognition that I need a Savior. Because if you're reminded frequently of your wretchedness, you're going to eventually hope there's a remedy. Well, God provides for them this remedy, and this pattern starts here in Genesis in the garden, right at the end of the time in the garden. God provides them the covering in the form of animals that were sacrificed in a sense as offerings to make up for or to atone for temporarily their sinful choices. Because once they have the skins on, is everything made new? Everything made whole? And they get to resume their relationship with God? No. What does it say in the next few verses? What does verses 22, 23, and 24 say happens? Lord God said, obviously in knowing good and evil, man has become like one of us, 
Now then he might reach out his hand to pluck and eat from the tree of life so as to live forever. So the Lord God expelled him from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the soil from which he had been taken. Uh, he drove out the man and placed cherubim east of the Eden Garden with a flaming sword turning in every direction to guard the path to the tree of life. Right. So even though they're covered, it's not that they are reconciled and that their relationship with God is restored to what it once was. The animal sacrifices that were made for Adam and Eve here, they only temporarily cover their indiscretions, just as the animal sacrificial system didn't do anything to permanently remedy our sinful situation. When did our situation get permanently remedied? When was there an offering that was made that did have a lasting effect? Yeah, Jesus. You think the conversation the after was, oh, by the way, you've got to go to the cross now? What do you mean? Because when he talks about... Oh, up in heaven? <laughs> like the rest like of the sins? Like, becomes like one of us. Oh, so I see what you're saying. talking to Jesus. <laughs> right, because if you look at that statement, it's an incomplete sentence. Mm-hmm. Do you notice yeah. that? What, what tree of life is he, re- that he referring to? Like a separate tree in the garden? No, no, it's the same one. Which one are you looking at? Which verse? Um, at the, the second of 22, where he says, okay. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Right, it's the one in the garden. With, are you... There's I'm not sure I know the question. Two trees. There's, yeah, so there's two trees. And so after after they've eaten from the, from the, yes. the tree of good and evil, yes. if they were allowed to eat from the tree of life, there's the, the fear there is, is that they'll be... What, what is the fear? The fear there is that they will stay eternally yeah. in their disenfranchised position now with God. Mm. Okay. That they will stay eternally in mm. their sinful state. And it would be better for them to physically die and gain eternal life than to physically live forever and never gain eternal life. Yeah, so the fear is that they won't ever see the end of misery, of living in this fallen state. And now the provision is, or the remedy that uh, that we have, or the relief that we have, in this life, this fallen life, we don't get relief until we die. And if we were to live forever, we'd never get relief. So God, in his graciousness, is providing for them an expiration date to their misery and the opportunity to enter into an eternal, restored state. Okay. Yeah, great question. Great mm. question. So yeah, by putting the skins on man and woman, it doesn't remedy their situation in God's eyes. In the sense, spiritually, they don't get restored in a physical sense. They don't get to hang out in the garden anymore. They don't get to be in God's presence. They are ejected from the garden. If you look there at the language, where it says there in verse 23... Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to till the ground from which he was taken. In verse 24, so he drove out the man. I mean, these are strong words. The sent out that's used there, the word that's described or defined as sent out, is actually used in other places to describe the sending out of Ishmael. Sarah told Abraham, get get that guy out of here. Get that kid out of here. And so he sent him out. And you remember, he was sent out to die. He was sent out to the desert to die and then you also find that the thrown out part where he drove out verse 24 that word is even stronger okay let's resume here 
the language that's also being used here where it talks about the animal skins and it talks about the clothing made of the skins and the and that God provided them clothing and clothed them is actually reminiscent of language that's going to show up later when it talks about Aaron as the high priest. When it talks about Aaron as the high priest and the high priest must be clothed appropriately before he can minister on behalf of the people in God's presence, those same words are being used to describe that as they are here. And so there's that priestly flavor to this whole passage here. And you remember also that we've talked about how the creation in some sense seemed to be mirroring later on the tabernacle, the arrangement of the tabernacle, being that the garden was the place where God dwelled. And then later on you have the tabernacle, the place where God dwells. And then later still, the temple, the place where God dwells. Here you have more reminders of that tabernacle language in that you've got the garments, but you've also got the mention of the cherubim, and you've got the mention of this cardinal direction of east. East was the direction they were expelled from the garden. As if the garden has only one entrance. Because the angels, the cherubim, and the flaming sword are guarding are guarding this position of entrance and egress, I guess, of the garden on the east side. You also have the tabernacle had its entrance on the east side. It was to face east. The temple, when it was created, faced east. The door was on the east side. Hmm. So you have this cardinal direction that seems to seems to suggest the tabernacle language that you have here as well. And then so you've got the clothing, you've got the cardinal direction of east. One of the other thing, neat things to notice here as well is that grace comes before judgment. God in his grace provides for them clothing before he kicks them out of the garden. He could have just sent them out. Could have said, you like those pig leaves? Let's see how they last out there in the arid wilderness. <laughs> but instead, he in his graciousness provides grace and then judgment. Later on, you see grace before judgment in Cain. Cain says, oh, God, anywhere I go, somebody's going to want to kill me. And God, in his graciousness, marks him for not to be killed and then sends Cain out, drives Cain out. In the flood narrative, you've got grace shown in the sense that there's a time of warning and then even the covenant that's going to happen after the flood, the post-flood covenant, is described, that graciousness is described even before the water starts to fall, before the rain starts to fall. You've got grace before judgment. Are we looking at a future judgment of any sort? Do we have any sort of future judgment ahead of us? What do we have? What's coming? What's it in the form of judgment? Shemitah. <laughs> you might not be off on that. <laughs> you might be on. What, what form of judgment is ahead of us that the Bible would describe? Great white throne judgment. Okay, so we've got a spiritual judgment of individuals coming. Exactly right. So we've got that form of judgment. Is there another form of judgment coming as well? So we've got judgment on corporately on the world. So we've got a physical, worldly judgment coming, and we've got an individual judgment spiritually coming. There's two big judgments coming. Has God done anything to show grace before those judgments get here? Send Jesus. Send Jesus. He provides a way of escape, doesn't he? We have a way of escape to escape the spiritual judgment that's coming. God in his graciousness has provided warnings to us of future judgment. It's up to us what we're going to do with that. Just as it was up to Adam and Eve when they were given warnings of judgment that would be coming upon them for choices if they were to make the wrong choice, this is the judgment you could expect. And in his graciousness, he warned them ahead of time, just as he warns us now, of ways to escape the judgment still yet ahead for us, both in a corporate sense and in an individual sense. This mention of the cherubim guarding the entryway to Eden, this is the first mention of cherubim in the Bible. These are the holy beings, the angelic beings, if you will, 
that show up for the first time here, but they also show up later on in the tabernacle. They're actually embroidered in the design of the curtain that separate, that's within the tabernacle that separates the holy place from the most holy place. The cherubim are also incorporated in the temple. In Solomon's temple, you see the cherubim not just on that same curtain, but the newer version, the bigger, nicer version, the Solomon with all of his unlimited resources version. But you also have the cherubim showing up in carvings on the doors, in carvings on the walls, and then in the most holy place, you have two 15-foot cherubim made of olive wood, covered in gold, 15 feet high, each one 15 feet wide, with their wings spread out. The wing over here touching the wall, this wing touching the tip of the wing of the next one, and then that those wings spread out to touch the neck, and with the two of them spanning 30 feet inside that Solomon's Temple. So you have the cherubim showing up more and more, but this is the first time you'll end up seeing them. So what did we learn from the end of these passages? Well, number one, we learned that you, you don't get away with your sin. A man reaps what he sows. And Adam is reaping what he's sowing. We learn that death is now inevitable. And we have now Genesis telling us part of the reason why that is. We see that no one's to blame for our sins except for ourselves. We might want to point the finger at this person or that person or this element or that characteristic or this factor. But really when it comes down to it, we're all individually accountable for the choices that we make. We also see a glimpse of why, maybe why humans are at odds with the animal world. We also see why there are fallen conditions in the world, like thorns and thistles. And we also see why there's tension and struggle, even in the closest relationships that we have with anybody, between a man and a woman. It's ironic that Adam was chosen to care for this garden, and now he's banished from it. It's sad to see that he once had access to the tree of life, and now he's forbidden to go to the tree of life, as we are too. But there is good news. If you turn to the back of your Bible, Revelation 21 and 22 paints a picture of a day when we will once again have access to the tree of life. It says in chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And then in verse 14 it says, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. We find that obedience, yet again, is tied to God's blessing. We see it in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3. We see it at the very end, Revelation chapter 22. That access to the tree of life is for those who are obedient. We find that Adam, in making his choices, in falling into the uh, trap of thinking that you will be like God, he probably maybe thought, well, that means power. Or that means maybe I'll have a throne. Maybe I'll have honor and glory. And really what he was doing was buying into the idea that I can be like God. And God won't go for that. He won't let us get away with that. And he ends up making a choice that affects us all, even to this day. But we look forward to the permanent solution that we would have. That solution bought and paid for by Christ in his sacrifice for us as a spotless lamb. And for the day yet future when we can have access to the tree of life, when this cursed creation gives way to the blessed creation. All right, let's close in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We pray that you would help us. Help us, Lord, to live our lives not asking what's in it for me, but what's in it for you. As Adam was in the garden, and I'm sure the idea or something similar to it crossed his mind of what's in it for me, Lord, that was what led him down the path that resulted in sinking the ship for all of us. I pray that you would help us to learn from that mistake. Help us to realize our sins often have costs that are far, far greater than we might have ever imagined. Help us, Lord, to ask, what can I do for you, my Creator, my Lord, my Savior? Not, what can I do for me? Help us, Lord, not to challenge you for the place on the throne of our own lives, but to recognize that our lives are gifts from you and help us to use them in obedience in doing what you would have us to do. And as a reward, Lord, we would look forward to the day when we can participate in a marriage supper with you and access to this tree of life and eternal dwelling in your presence. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.